One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hello and welcome to Past the podcast about those who would never rule. I'm Veronica Fortune, and this week's episode is Charles of Orleans, Part 5. Welcome back. Last week, I finished with Charles's return to France after 25 years in English captivity. He was greeted in Gravelines by Philip the Good on the 11th of November, 1440. Their meeting was emotional and would include Charles's brother, the bastard, and Philip's wife, as well as Charles's future wife, and more on her in a moment. This meeting may have been wanted by all, but it made Philip a bit nervous. Philip the Good, like his father John the Fearless, was the Duke of Burgundy, and Burgundy was an appendage of France. If you're curious about that, just wait for this week's This Too Shall Pass. As such, he was a powerful man, and while legally he was the ninth man in the kingdom, if I've gotten my dukes right, he had much more power than would be expected for someone of his relatively low precedence. With Charles back, Philip would no longer be the second most powerful person in the kingdom, at least in theory. He was lucky, though. Charles wasn't power-hungry. Instead, Charles really did want to embrace the role of peacemaker, both between France and England, and within France herself. Plus, Charles lacked a bit of political awareness, as would happen spending many of your years in a different country. While he was in Gravelines, he swore to the Treaty of Arras, with a single reservation. His reservation was in regards to the murder of John the Fearless. He wanted to make it very clear that he had taken no part in the event. He ordered his brother to swear as well, the, the bastard, the one who was there, not John, who was still, of course, in England as a prisoner. Even though Philip the Good quickly realized that Charles was not going to try to outmaneuver him, he still wasn't going to complain if Charles was on his side. The easiest way to do this was, of course, to get Charles to marry one of his many nieces, Marie of Cleves. Now, this wasn't a surprise wedding, papal dispensation, which requires both parties to apply for it or acknowledge it, had been applied for in July 1440, in preparation for Charles's return. Of course, they were related, everyone is related. The chosen bride, Marie, was, well, 14, to Charles's 46. She was also apparently beautiful and niece of Philip, and that's all they needed. Throughout her marriage to Charles, she will travel a lot, and this traveling seems to not agree with her health. She'll be unwell upon their return from most of their trips. Philip's older nieces were all already married, in case you're wondering why Charles married a rather young girl. She was with her uncle and aunt at Gravelines, and the couple apparently got along well. Charles also couldn't complain about her dowry either. 
It was 100,000 écus. Philip the Good also planned and paid for the whole wedding, which happened on the 23rd of November. You may have noticed one rather important person hasn't been mentioned yet. The king, Charles VII. Yeah, he was in Paris, and Charles hadn't gone directly there to greet his cousin and lord. Oops. Instead of heading to Paris right after his wedding, Charles was inducted into the Order of the Golden Fleece. The order was Philip the Good's new chivalric order that he had created in 1430. Charles, showing his lack of political acumen, inducted Philip into the Order of the Camel immediately after, like pulled the pork of pine insignia out of his jacket and put it on Philip. In case you're curious, the English name for this order is the Order of the Porcupine, and it was founded in 1394. Philip the Good was likely hoping that having Charles join his order would have bound Charles to him in a slightly subservient way. He wasn't planning on wearing a porcupine that day. While Charles was with Philip the Good, some of the leaders of the city of Bruges came to visit Charles to ask him to intercede with Philip on their behalf. The city had rebelled against Philip years earlier, and he had promised to never visit again. The city leaders wanted Charles to convince Philip to visit and make peace with them, and Charles managed this easily. He and Philip, along with their wives and retinues, headed to Bruges on the 11th of December. So now, Charles has been in France for over a month and still hasn't visited the king. While they were in Bruges, Philip decided he needed one more thing to keep Charles close to him a personal treaty. In this document, neither prince could make further treaties without the other's approval, and they agreed that they should aim to restore peace within France. Charles and his new wife spent Christmas with her family before beginning their trip to Orléans. This trip home would of course include a stop in Paris. Throughout their stops on the way to Paris, they were greeted and celebrated in each city. The couple were given gifts regularly at towns they passed through, and people expressed that they were hoping Charles would bring peace to France. As they went, their retinue also grew, ballooning to hundreds if not thousands of followers. Charles VII was a bit annoyed that Charles hadn't come to see him immediately, and he was not impressed by the large number of followers his cousin had brought with him. Charles VII had also been informed of everything that had been going on between Charles and Philip. Charles may not have been aware of the difficulties that had been going on in France, especially with Charles VII on one side and Philip the Good and the Dauphin Louis on the other. When Charles arrived on the 14th of January, 1441, into Paris, he was asked to come alone to meet with the king. This is an odd request for one of Charles' stature. Even if he were meeting the king in private, a man of his rank would never travel alone. Remember, even when he was in England, his servants were with him regularly and his guards would keep him company. He wasn't alone. Being alone wasn't something he would be used to. Normally, one would enter the palace with their retinue and then go on into a private room to discuss things and there would be people right outside the door. Charles seems to have realized he had made a mistake and decided not to see the king. He only stayed in Paris for a week but while he was there, the citizens voiced to him that they were happy for his return and hoped this would bring peace. He really was seen as a peacemaker. After leaving Paris, Charles and Marie continued their trip to Orléans. 
Their reception there was grand. They reached the city on the 24th of January. There were 12 days of parties to celebrate his return. The couple were also showered with gifts and money. And remember, this area had been under war, so getting that together was a lot of work. Once these celebrations were over, the couple finally headed to Blois, which was where Charles had decided to make their home. Upon his return, he found that his book collection, the one he'd ordered sold while he was in England, was mostly intact. Only a few items had been sold before the servant who was in charge of it put a stop to it. Charles would spend a great deal of his time and money on acquiring new books. This is a man who would have loved modern bookstores. The couple wouldn't stay in the city long. They left to visit Brittany and Alençon, the latter being Charles's son-in-law, though of course Jane had died years earlier. Alençon had at this point remarried, but apparently Charles still saw him as a son, and the two would remain close throughout their lives. This visit led to an alliance between Charles, Brittany, and Alençon. They were joined by Bourbon, who is the third Duke of Bourbon in this series, so this is the son of the Bourbon who was taken captive in Agincourt. Charles kept in contact with Philip the Good, of course. They would actually remain in regular contact throughout the rest of Charles's life. Charles also, while with Alençon and Brittany, contacted Henry VI to try to arrange another peace conference. This one they were trying to schedule for May of 1441. Henry was in favor of this and selected his ambassadors on the 10th of April. While Charles was meeting with his friends, Isabella of Portugal, Philip the Good's wife, went to Leon, where Charles VII was staying. She went there to, uh, well, tell him off, both for not meeting with Charles when he had come through Paris and for not helping Charles as much as he should have while Charles was in England. She also clued Charles VII in that the princes were working on a peace conference with Henry VI. Charles VII then decided that the princes couldn't take part in this peace conference. Now, he had earlier suggested they would be able to go, and changed his mind at the last moment. Charles VII did claim that he had sent ambassadors to meet the English, but that the English had only sent a clerk. You may have noticed in earlier parts of this series that every time there's a peace conference, it feels a bit like the game of telephone. The arrangements feel like each side can't communicate with each other. And yes, that is often the case. With communication being slow and each side wanting to protect their dignity, the actual purpose, peace, would sometimes get lost in the mix. It's likely that England had heard that the princes of the blood weren't coming and therefore weren't sure if the conference was going ahead. They sent a clerk to check and report back before the ambassadors left for France. Remember, it's usually less than a day-long trip. Charles was, of course, disappointed that this conference didn't happen. I imagine he would have been even more disappointed had it happened and he not be there. Henry VI agreed to another conference, and yet again, this didn't happen. In France's defense, the English were actually fighting with them while this conference was meant to be starting. Richard III, Duke of York, had orders to march into France. There had been hope that the Duke of York would be helping with peace talks, but as you should all know, this did not happen. When the king found out that a few of his princes had been negotiating with the Duke of York, he was upset since he had been left out. It actually caused Charles VII to want to go to war in Normandy. 
French forces actually took Pontoys in September of 1441. With this, Charles would not be able to meet the peace condition of his release. It appears that he was so popular with Henry VI and most of the English court, save Gloucester and a certain Duke of York, that they were understanding of this struggle and didn't hold it against him. Despite what he likely would have felt as a failure, he continued trying to bring peace between France and England. At this point, he had been back in France for almost a year and still hadn't seen the king. Charles was invited to join Philip the Good in October of 1441. After two weeks, they were joined by the bastard. The goal in this meeting was to set up a conference between the princes of the blood to discuss peace with England. They wanted to meet in Nevers as soon as possible. Philip did realize during these meetings that they should probably include, uh, I don't know, the king? Philip proposed that the king should be consulted and they should seek his approval before setting up a meeting. You guys are getting the idea now. This probably would have been a good idea a few conference attempts earlier. Philip, likely after his wife suggested it, decided it would be a good chance to help Charles and Charles get back onto good terms. To this end, Philip had Charles write up the proposal for the king's approval. Charles wrote to Charles VII as soon as he returned to Blois. The bastard personally carried his letter and the proposal to the king. And Charles VII was seemingly happy for this contact and responded immediately in both writing and through the bastard, who you will hopefully remember had been winning back France for him while Charles had been imprisoned in England. The king approved of a meeting as soon as possible in Borges. He did make note that he would have to look after the war effort if the meeting started too late. Charles proposed the 28th of January, 1442, and shared this with Philip. He also asked Charles VII to invite Brittany. They had invited him to join them in Nevers, but he had declined, and it does appear that his health was failing. This meeting didn't happen. The king didn't really attend, but he approved of the proceedings, and he made it clear he wanted peace with England and wanted talks held in May. It was also important to the king that these talks not take place in Calais, mainly because Charles VII was sick of talks in Calais. It was just so last year. If May couldn't happen, he would meet in October and somewhere near Calais. He wanted the kings of Scotland and Spain to also attend, and the princes should send emissaries to England to convince them to send proper ambassadors. Yes, they didn't want this single clerk mix-up happening again. The princes asked on Charles' behalf that the king return any property he had seized from Charles while he was imprisoned in England. The king denied that he had taken anything, but promised to fund Charles regardless, and told the other princes that they should too. Yeah, there might have been a bit of a side-eye there. After this conference, Charles and Charles finally met at Limoges on the 18th of May, 1442. They were finally on good terms. Charles also got to meet the Dauphin Louis, which would have been, well, it would have happened. Charles VII also gave Charles 14,500 écus that had been collected in taxes from his lands while he was gone. He also granted Charles 168,000 écus. With this, Charles was finally able to finish paying his ransom. He was also able to help pay some of his retainers for their long service. 
The one thing I did notice there is no mention of is him paying anything towards John's ransom with this. Yes, it seems that for the first time since his little brother was made a hostage, Charles wasn't thinking of him. And this will lead to a little loss of love between the brothers in a few years' time. The king did, during this time, ban Charles from contacting the English. And somehow, Charles seemingly ignored this and wrote to the English anyways. I'm sure he didn't think writing to his friend Suffolk was writing to the English. So what happened with this conference that all the princes and the king had agreed on? Well, it didn't happen, despite the English again selecting ambassadors. Henry VI even expressed his want for a truce, and yep, yet again, nothing happened. The good thing is, though, that Charles VII started allowing Charles to act as his agent when dealing with the English. In addition, Charles got to know the king's brothers-in-law, René and Charles of Anjou. René in particular enjoyed poetry, and he would write to Charles regularly. So finally, in 1444, France and England got together for negotiations. You'll remember how in the start of this subject, I discussed that we'd be looking at this period of history through French eyes. So Agincourt was devastating. And now we get to Suffolk's negotiations for a bride for Henry VI from a French point of view. For the French, these negotiations were great. Suffolk, who will soon have the shortest exile, did take steps to protect himself from any fallout of these negotiations. He had asked that the king would not hold him responsible for any failures the embassy faced. This promise was even published, not that it will help him in a few years. And after this message, you'll hear more. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. 
Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Suffolk was a great choice, and he and Charles would be able to negotiate directly with each other. Think all the way back to Robert Curthose negotiating directly with Edgar the Etheling for Scotland and the border with England. Charles VII issued papers of credential for Charles and his other ambassadors in March of 1444. Charles VII sent his other ambassadors to bring Suffolk from Calais to Compagnon to meet with Charles. Of course, like every single example of the game of telephone that diplomatic proceedings were in this age, things changed. Instead of landing in Calais, Suffolk landed in Hafleur and was going through Rouen to Le Mans. Suffolk managed to reach Le Mans all on his own, with his English retainers, of course. All sides agreed that throughout these negotiations, fighting should be stopped in the neighboring territories. Suffolk, having been met by a French escort, headed towards Blois to meet Charles. McLeod does suggest that this meeting would have been emotional, which, based on Charles's writings in general, would not be surprising. He was a man aware and comfortable with his emotions. Charles's time with Suffolk in England hadn't been bad, and he saw Suffolk as a friend. Charles had been joined in Blois earlier by René of Anjou, and they had been writing poetry while waiting. With Suffolk, they set off for a tour, which they reached on the 16th of April. They were met there by Charles VII and Marie of Anjou, the queen whose name I may not have mentioned yet. I am very sorry, Marie. This isn't intentional. In case you haven't guessed, René of Anjou was her brother. Louis, the Dauphin, was also at this meeting, and he was apparently unimpressed and, you know, just wanted to go do something cool. Suffolk's first proposal was for the marriage between Henry VI and Margaret of Anjou, René's youngest daughter, who was 15. Remember, there had been earlier suggestions of a higher-ranking French princess, but they wouldn't have been Henry's first cousins, which was a bit iffy. I will say that almost every source I've read throughout the Hundred Years' War episodes say either the English wanted Margaret of Anjou or the French wouldn't hand over one of Charles VII's daughters. I honestly don't think we'll ever know exactly why Margaret was chosen. And really, it doesn't matter. She was. Oh, and the House of Anjou was broke, so they really couldn't offer a dowry. But if the English would just give them Maine, that would be great. As you know, Suffolk agreed to this on the king's behalf. Charles VII and Marie of Anjou, along with Margaret's parents, approved of the match immediately. She and her mother went to their properties to begin preparing her for her long voyage. Now, this was still a peace conference, not just a wedding proposal. The French offered the English, Guyenne, Percy, Pergola, and Calais, all with homage. In exchange, Suffolk offered a long truce. This truce was only meant to last from May 1444 until April 1445, but it ended up lasting five years. How amazing would that have been for all French people? Once the negotiations were complete, Charles was the first to sign the Treaty of Troyes. Now, with the treaty sorted out, maybe Charles should, I don't know, get his brother out of England? Yes, Charles had been back in France for three and a half years and hadn't done anything during this time to get his brother home. 
Luckily for John, his current keeper, John Beaufort, was apparently a kind jailer. In addition, Beaufort was close to Suffolk. During the negotiations for the Treaty of Tours, John was actually in France. He had come over with Beaufort when Beaufort came to France as Lieutenant General of the Army. While he was in France, John was more easily able to write his French friends, supporters, and his brothers. His first letter, in fact, went to his brothers, Charles and the Bastard. In this letter, he thanked Charles for some wine he had sent him, and then he asked for money. Mainly some of the funding Burgundy had given Charles. John was rather broke, and these funds would help greatly. This was also a bit of a roundabout way for John to ask his brothers to, you know, get him out of jail? Charles, of course, wrote back right away to tell him he'd do his best. Charles, the Bastard, and Suffolk all met to discuss what they could do to help John, and a plan was hatched. So what was this plan? Charles and the Bastard would need to pay one-sixth of John's ransom, as it had been calculated at this point, up front, and the remaining five-sixths over time. Now, I'm not giving you the money amounts because they don't make much sense. Once the initial payment was made, John would be released. While Beaufort would die prior to the full amount being paid, his widow made sure every penny was collected. By him dying prior, I mean he died prior to any payments being made or even the negotiations being finished. Once this agreement was made, though, Charles set about raising funds. As no one should be surprised, John was not too pleased that Charles had taken so long. Not long after he wrote the first letter, he wrote a second letter that wasn't friendly or kind. It was helpful, but somewhat mean-spirited. John warned Charles that he had heard rumors while staying with the English army. The first thing he shared was that Henry VI and Margaret of Anjou needed to consummate their marriage quickly. Really, the level that everyone worried about the king's sex life is disturbing. He told Charles he needed to get Charles VII to Paris and that Charles needed to stay close to the king. He also warned him that he needed to double-check his governor of finances' sums. This man was rather trusted, so this was a bit shocking. John was also unloving in the letter and told Charles off for taking so long to look after him. What's even more interesting is that he wrote to the bastard at the same time, and this letter was kind and grateful. I'd like to point out that both brothers should have been working on this earlier. I know Charles had more funding, but the bastard should probably have been told off a little anyways as well. There is a chance that John was worried Charles would not take the letter seriously unless John kept the tone serious. Sadly, despite the work of Charles, the bastard, and Suffolk, John was sent back to England. That whole Beaufort dying thing just came at a bad time. Thankfully for John, Suffolk and his brothers didn't give up, and John was finally returned to Rouen in March of 1445 and freed by Suffolk. He was 46, and while it's heartbreaking that he spent much of his life in prison, John would live well into his 60s and marry four years after his return. He and his wife Marguerite would have two surviving children, Charles, as in Charles of Angoulême, our next subject, and Joan. John will come up a few more times, but I just wanted to remind you all of his importance in this series. Suffolk was in Rouen specifically for a marriage. The marriage of Margaret of Anjou and Henry VI, by proxy, with Suffolk acting as that proxy. 
Yeah, royal weddings can be a bit odd. Suffolk did try to help Charles out after releasing John by letting John know that Charles had played a huge part in his freedom. With this deed done, Suffolk left France to escort Margaret of Anjou to England for what I'm sure will be a boring reign as queen consort. Right? I'm, I'm kidding. It's going to be busy, Margaret. I'm sorry it doesn't work out well for you. You were just a woman out of your time. And had you been in France, you would have been just fine ruling. After his brother's release, Charles sent him a bunch of money. It appears the first time they saw each other was in Nancy in April of 1445. Charles and his wife Marie were there visiting Charles VII and his queen at their court. Everyone was, of course, pleased to see John. Remember, he'd been gone for more than 30 years. He'd left as a child, and now they were looking at a grown man, properly into middle age. Once everyone had become reacquainted, Charles and Marie, along with John, headed to Paris. They had plans to meet their sister Margaret. This was not just a family reunion. Charles was finishing up a bit of paperwork. Now that John was back in the country, Charles needed to sort out the inheritance from both Louis of Orléans and Philip, their brother who had died while Charles and John were in England. Once this was sorted, he returned to Blois with Marie. As I've mentioned, Blois was Charles's favorite residence, and he spent a great deal of his wealth in the upkeep and expansion of this property. Marie was apparently happy there. She loved hunting and falconry far more than he did and would spend her free time in the outdoors. Charles, on the other hand, spent his time in his library. For the next two years, Charles stayed in Blois except to attend the Order of the Golden Fleece meetings. He returned immediately to Blois once this meeting was done. But something happened in Italy which will force him to leave his lovely favorite city. In Milan, in August of 1447, Filippo Maria Visconti died. Do you remember him? He was the Duke of Milan and Charles's uncle through Valentina. A quick note, Sforza had handed over the governorship of Asti to the bastard in 1447, but the bastard, due to his military efforts in France, was an absentee governor. I think we can all understand why. John even warned Charles that he needed to pay more attention to Asti in 1444 upon his return. But Charles hadn't really done much. With Filippo Maria's death, there was going to be a struggle over Milan. Filippo Maria had willed the duchy to the king of Aragon. This is going to come out to be a lot of nothing for Charles. But he needed to secure his city, Asti. What was also important is that legally he should be the Duke of Milan, based on the generally recognized inheritance at the time. He was the oldest legitimate nephew of the last duke, and the Milanese didn't practice Salic law. Instead, Sforza used his marriage to Bianca Maria, Filippo Maria's only child, who was illegitimate, to claim Milan. So Charles did finally need to sort things out. He didn't have the funds or an army to go to Milan, but he did have other options. You may remember that Charles and Philip the Good had signed a treaty. This treaty also happened to include a mutual assistance clause. So Charles went to Milan via Burgundy. The good news is this wouldn't make his trip much longer. Philip the Good didn't give Charles troops or funds, but he did allow Charles to raise troops from Burgundian towns. While Charles was there, he met with Oliver de la March, who would one day chronicle the Burgundian court. 
In addition to Philip's help, Charles VII also allowed Charles to raise funds. With his help, Charles crossed the Alps and entered Asti on the 16th of October, 1447. Swartza was trying to take control of the city, but it would not open its gates to him. Charles, however, was another story. He was greeted with joy. He actually stayed in the city until August of 1448. While he was there, he sent orators to Milan to lay a formal claim to the duchy. Now, Charles will never actually hold Milan. The city of Asti, though, will continue to send Charles his portion of their tax annually for the rest of his life. His son, Louis, who will eventually become Louis XII, will make good on the claim to the duchy. But this isn't his episode, since he did rule. Plenty of people have covered him. On his return to France, Charles spent a day in Orléans before he returned to Blois. He was actually ill on his return. You may not have realized this, but at this point, he was almost 54. His own doctor cared for him, of course, but the Queen's doctor was actually called to assist. He obviously recovered because, spoilers, he lives a bit longer. While Charles had been in Italy, the bastard had won Le Mans back from the English. This was one of the many victories that will lead to the end of the Hundred Years' War. Upon Charles's recovery, the king and queen paid him a state visit. They discussed helping the citizens of Asti. Charles also brought two citizens with him on his return. These brothers wrote letters back to the people of Asti to keep the city's morale high. And while Charles's attempts at gaining the Duchy of Milan came to nothing, it didn't stop him from trying to help protect Asti and trying to push his claim in general. He went to Amiens in Burgundy again to try to raise funds, and he may have actually started to annoy Philip, but as always, the Burgundian was a gracious host. He returned to Blois in February of 1449. That year, Charles's younger brother John got married. I did mention that this would happen. After this, he went to Philip the Good one more time, and this time he managed to get some funding out of this visit. Once he had gotten back home in September of 1449, he was about to get some good news. In October, the bastard drove the English out of Rouen. This means that some of Charles's towns in Normandy were returned to him. And this, of course, means more money, because these cities will be sending their taxes to him, not the English. It also means that he can look into restoring these towns as needed. He would visit Rouen in December of 1449 and stay there through January of 1450, and Marie traveled with Charles this time. Now, I've mentioned Marie's health earlier. She had been unwell at various times throughout her travels. She even stayed in Blois while Charles was in Italy. In March 1450, she was unwell again. They needed to return to Blois just for her to recover, and thankfully she did, of course. Marie at this point is 24 and was still able to ride and hunt, which were her loves. And even with her illnesses, it does appear she made time for these things when she was well. She had also adopted Valentina's device. The English translation is roughly, Nothing is to me anymore is nothing to me anymore. I'm not going to butcher it in French, but it is just a note of how Charles influenced his wife and likely how she wanted to show her care for him. Charles and John's relationship had improved since the letter's return. They would share books from their respective vast libraries. John had also brought back a large library from England, just like Charles, and he kept in touch with his sister and her son Francis. 
Charles also gave Francis a small pension, which was nice because at the time, Francis was the cousin of the Duke of Brittany, who had brothers and was still young enough to have sons. Yeah, Francis was an unlikely Duke of Brittany. In addition to keeping in contact with his family, Charles formed his own little court at his palace. This wasn't a rival court to his cousin Charles VII. No, this was a court of learning and poetry. In addition to regular visitors, including the various princes of the blood, international negotiators, and occasionally the king and queen, Charles had his own full-time guests. The most important was Pierre, or Peter of Bourbon. Peter was the third son of the current Duke of Bourbon. If you're confused as to which Bourbon this is, the first Bourbon in this series was the great-grandfather of Peter. John, the Bourbon who was captured at Agincourt, was Peter's grandfather. I hope that helps. Believe it or not, there will be one more Duke of Bourbon to succeed in Charles' lifetime. Peter lived at Blois full-time, and Charles and Marie acted as his guardians. He was occasionally joined by Albrecht's grandson. The other members of this court of learning were the sons and grandsons of the minor nobility and landed gentry. These men were often the higher-ranked servants in each duchy, and their sons and grandsons needed to be comfortable interacting with the higher nobility to be useful for the county or duchy or country in general. These young men and boys would often act as, say, a cupbearer or a meat carver. Not difficult backbreaking work, just little jobs to justify their presence at the great houses. For those living in Charles's Blois property, they would also receive a first-class education in the art of poetry and rhetoric. Charles would hold regular poetry tournaments or debates or even games. Yes, it was not dissimilar to a poetry slam, with the older statesmen leading the younger men to stretch their rhetorical skills. It sounds like fun to me, though being a woman, I might not have been invited. They would use philosophy and history to further strengthen their prose. Valentine's Day was a special day for poets, as it can be today. Charles would take pains to assure that the young men weren't being too cliché in their compositions, and he would also take care to write the last bit of the final poem himself, just to help the boys out. Further with his love of poetry, his letters to friends were often written in verse, at least in part. His friends would attempt to respond in kind. I'm not saying they weren't talented, but they were being compared to a master. Peter's older brother, John, the current Count of Clermont, was Charles's favorite chess partner. He had one of the best nicknames. Well, if you were French, it's the Scourge of the English. Charles appears to have enjoyed playing board games almost as much as he enjoyed writing poetry. His account books show that he regularly won these games, as in he was betting on them, and there's a record of his wins. In May of 1450, Charles would receive sad news from England. His friend, William de la Pole, who was now the Duke of Suffolk, who had been his kind jailer, had experienced the shortest exile in history. He had been punished for the losses of parts of France with a five-year exile. He left England on the 2nd of May, and on the way to Calais, his ship had been boarded by pirates or privateers. He was forced to go through a mock trial, after which he was executed. I've obviously shared this death earlier during Richard III, Duke of York's episodes, and I wanted to share it in Charles's episode 
because I want to make sure we remember that there is often more than one side to many issues. Not all issues, but many. It's interesting to note that even though this event would have impacted him, Charles didn't write any poetry about it. And it seems that he kept politics out of most of his work. So even though Suffolk had been a friend, he had also been part of the politics of the day. While Charles usually avoided political poetry, as the French won more of their country back from the English, he did take a bit of a shot at Henry V. If you remember all the way back to the second episode, where Henry V, after winning Agincourt, tells Charles that the English had won because God wanted to punish the French. As word of these French victories came through, Charles included the line, quote, It appears they are hated by God, end quote in one of his many poems from the period. And he finishes with, quote, their great pride completely crushed and gave you back Guyenne and Normandy, end quote. You may remember that the Hundred Years' War ended on the 17th of July, 1453, or at other times around there. With the death of Suffolk and the end of the Hundred Years' War, again, I'm going to stop for the day. There will be one more episode. I know you're probably all wondering when we're going to find out about his son. You know, the one who will be Louis XII? Well, that will be coming towards the end of next week's episode. Yes, Charles actually has four children, and I've only mentioned his oldest thus far. Next week, we'll sadly see the end of his story. And I know that this being a history podcast, each of these subjects will die at some point. But some are a bit harder than others when they go. I don't miss a certain Burgundian, but I'm going to miss talking about Charles. And I hope you'll join me for the conclusion of his story next week. I'll see you then. Thank you for listening to Past. I can be found on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at PastPod. That's P-A-S-S-E-D-P-O-D. Please feel free to email me at PastPod at gmail.com. I have a Patreon that can be found at patreon.com forward slash PastPod. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.